This is the message given by Pastor Roger Wagner during the morning worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for June 18th, 2023. The title of the message is, The Father of All Fathers. Well, I'm thankful to the session for the invitation to fill the pulpit this morning. Um, Nice to uh, lend a hand to my dear friend, Pastor James, too. You know, when we would go on family vacations or anything else where we had to leave the pulpit behind, my wife was in charge of travel arrangements, and I was in charge of the more arduous duty, which was find somebody to fill in for me while I was gone. Um, Over the last 40 years, I don't get out and around very much. I've been in this building a number of times for presbytery meetings and uh, not a few memorial services, but this is the first time I've been able to be with you for uh, a morning worship service, and I'm delighted to be here. Our text this morning is one verse, but we will read it in context. Uh, So as a Printed for you, we have Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, which is 14 and 15, is at least the theme of our message, and then the prayer that follows. This is the word of the Lord. Let's hear it with faith. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as you gave these words so many centuries ago to your Apostle Paul, we ask now that you would give them to us in a living and powerful way. Lord, we know that there are hundreds of ways to misread the Bible, but only one way to read it properly, and that is with the humble and receptive heart. You speak so that we might listen, so that we might be instructed, directed, encouraged, and helped, that we might live lives that are pleasing in your sight. I pray for my fellow fathers and grandfathers and maybe a great-grandfather or two that are here this morning as we think about you as our Father in heaven. So bless us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Welcome, fathers, grandfathers, great-grandfathers. That doesn't mean the rest of you are irrelevant. You're welcome to listen in. Uh, But um, I want us to think as fathers about fathers and particularly about 
the Father of all fathers, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who created us, the God who has redeemed us through the accomplishment of his Son. Um, I'm not sure that we're as sentimental about Father's Day as we are about Mother's Day. I learned early on as a, as a pastor in my early years, you know, I was charging through a book study, um, and I decided I was just going to stick with the book study as I went right on through Mother's Day. Now, I know some of my colleagues take it as a matter of principle that this is the Lord's Day, and we're going to preach about what comes next, and maybe we'll tip a hat to special occasions, but... Boy, did I ever hear about it when I missed Mother's Day. So I I learned that lesson. Uh, But I've never had any guy tell me, oh, you forgot to remember the fathers on Father's Day. But I throw us in for good measure. Uh, Unless you live in a hole in the ground, you know that uh, fatherhood is under attack by our culture in our secular pagan, humanistic world. Um, And it gets worse year by year, almost seems like month by month. What was unthinkable 20 years ago is now commonplace. Uh, What was supposedly accepted in the past must now be affirmed. And as the view of our culture of the family deteriorates, then so also the role of fathers. Now, some of it's our own fault. There are plenty of negligent, abusive, irresponsible fathers in the world, and there have always been uh, men who abandon their family. My father's father left a family of six children. Um, when they were very young, and my grandmother had to take care of them through the depths of the Depression on the frontier. Um, And that left a mark on my father. Some of you may have had similar experiences, men who uh, neglect their children or they can't stand their wives anymore, so they divorce their wife, giving little thought to the impact that that will have on their children. Or men who want sex, but don't want fatherhood. And so they pressure their partners into seeking an abortion. Lots of ways in which fathers spoil their own reputation in our culture. But then there are others who, for ideological reasons, pagan reasons, want to minimize and then even destroy the important role of fathers in our country. And and now even the whole idea of masculinity. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Are are sexual identities simply interchangeable uh, conveniences on the part of a society, or worse yet, a matter of of oppressing someone? Um, Lots of things wrong. And, And when we listen to these things and we're impacted by them, we we can easily become so distressed and try and figure out what what can be done. And maybe if we could just turn the clock back 50 years or 100 years and, and then things would be better again. But we know as believers that we must always repair to our God. We must go and have him speak to us. If we're going to understand our lives, 
and if we're going to be motivated to be the kind of people that he wants us to be, new creatures in Christ. Paul tells us here in this passage that all fatherhood derives its meaning, its purpose, its direction from the fatherhood of the God of the Bible, the true and living God, the God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he initiates this prayer uh, by invoking God as father and then goes on to pray for a number of things. And we're not going to look at the context so much, but just to take that idea of the fatherhood of God and then how that impacts all of us as children of God, but particularly men and fathers who are called to imitate this father of all fathers. And then we'll draw a few lessons uh, from that as we conclude. When we think about the fatherhood of God, we can think about it in two senses. God is our father by virtue of his being our creator, and he is our father by virtue of his being our redeemer. Creational fatherhood, of course, uh, is there from the very beginning in the book of Genesis. God was in the beginning, and everything that was created, heavens and the earth and all that they contain, including human beings on the sixth day of creation, were brought into existence by God himself. He is the originator, and in his good providence, he is the um, sustainer, the governor, the provider for everything that exists outside of himself. The question is asked in Job 20, uh, 38, has the rain a father? Who has begotten the drops of dew? So even down to what we would consider to be natural processes within the creation are the personal doing of the God who created and sustained all of his creation. And this is particularly true of his human creatures, those who are uniquely made in his image and his likeness. For them, he is a father, in a sense, different, heightened over that which obtains between God and all of his other creatures. But that fatherhood was deliberately rejected by our first parents, Adam and Eve. They did not want God to be their God, nor did they cherish the fact that he was their father, their originator, their provider. Instead, they listened to the serpent who tempted them to become like gods themselves. You can be a kind of a father to yourself. And ever since, the human race has rejected God as father. So if we think about ourselves in relation to God as the creational father, we're runaway children. We're people who say, I don't want this house. I don't want these rules. I don't care about these benefits. I'm out of here. And the human race has lived in alienation and estrangement, lost children of God. Paul says earlier, uh, uh, sorry, in the next chapter of Ephesians, that we are by nature alienated from the life of God because of our ignorance and hardness of heart. So the old liberalism, when they adopted this slogan, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, 
It, it sounded like good news, but it's really not good news because we've rejected God as our Father in that sense. And all we do as brothers and sisters in the human race is fight and argue and destroy. When we rejected the fatherhood of God as our creator, we brought chaos and death into our human experience. So when we think about God as our father in that sense, all we can expect is judgment. We need another expression of God's fatherhood. And thankfully, we have that in the gospel. For that God who was rejected as our father in creation has now in grace and mercy become the father of his people through redemption. It's there in the Old Testament when God says in Hosea chapter 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. But it comes more sharply into focus with the sending of the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit into the world. You know that the one who was incarnate from the Virgin Mary, born in Bethlehem, was none other than the eternal Son, the one who had been there with the Father and the Spirit from before time. But the eternal Son now becomes the messianic Son, the incarnate Son, the one who has come to show us the Father, to explain to us who God really is and how we can be restored to a relationship of sonship or daughterhood, if that's a word. So we have in Christ then the revelation of the Father through the Son. Jesus so regularly speaks about God as his Father. John chapter 14, verse 6, for example, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But then in verse 8, Philip says, Show us the Father, Lord, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the revealer of the Father. We learn of the Father through the Son because of the likeness of the Son to the Father. Just as human fathers bear children in their likeness, and sometimes you can see it, a photograph of dad and son together, and you say, ah, oh, okay, we can see the family resemblance. So Jesus reveals the Father to us who really see him by faith. He says, he goes on to say, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus came into the world, conscious of his relationship with the Father, and his purpose of showing men the Father, revealing the Father, and inviting us then, as sinners, as rebels, as runaway children, to come home. And that, of course, makes that story of the prodigal son so very telling, not only for the nation of Israel that had wandered from God, but for all of us as human beings that have forsaken the fatherhood of God. So by grace, through faith in the Son, you and I are invited 
into a relationship which is parallel to but distinct from Jesus' relationship with his Father in heaven. After the resurrection, Jesus, in speaking to Mary, says, uh, Tell the disciples that I am going to Galilee and I am going to ascend to the Father. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And by using that phraseology, he doesn't say ascending to our Father, identifying our relationship with his own, but distinguishing them, but making them very, very much a reflection of one another. He is the Son, par excellence, with all that that means, and we are adopted children through faith in Him. And we not only have a status, but we are introduced into an understanding of that status through the Spirit of the Son who is given to us as a spirit of adoption. And Paul speaks of this as well as Jesus. Jesus, of course, announced in the upper room that he was going away, but when he left, he would send the Holy Spirit in his place, and that that Spirit was sent by him because it was sent by the Father. And the Spirit, among his many works in the lives of believers, is the one who reveals to us and helps us to understand and enjoy existentially what it means to be children of God. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You know, when a child is born into the family, he has to learn gradually who the father is. And of course, you know, are they going to say mama or dada first? little competition there between mom and dad. But eventually the child comes more by inference than by direct instruction to know who the Father is. Well, we need to come to know who the Father is, and that comes as the Spirit bears witness with us. Again, Paul writing in Galatians chapter 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Came up in the Sunday school class. We are frequently called servants of God, slaves of God, and that's one way to think about it. But here in this passage and elsewhere where Jesus says, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you sons, shows that the idea of sonship is an advancement because slaves are motivated by one set of factors. Children who love their father are motivated by a very, very different set of uh, factors. So what is this gracious relationship 
called adoption or perhaps sonship, except that sounds like it excludes the ladies. Weosthesia, uh, sorry, I practiced that, practiced that. After all these years, I still can't pronounce these Greek words by just looking at them. Uh, Strong, in his um, uh, word studies, talks about this describing the relationship which God was pleased to establish between himself and the Israelites. So that's the old covenant sonship. But then the nature and condition of true disciples of Christ, who by receiving the Spirit of God into their souls become the sons of God. And it has a future reference, although that's not really what we're thinking about. When our bodies are raised from the dead, that is called our adoption as sons. We are children of God by this gracious relationship. It's founded, of course, as I said already, in union with Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He's the second Adam. In Luke's genealogy of Jesus, you know, that traces it back to Adam, Adam is called the Son of God. The second Adam, the last Adam, is Son of God, not only in the sense of being the Messiah, but even in the deeper sense of being the eternal Son now come in the flesh. And it does involve a status In that regard, it's like justification. Justification deals with our standing, our status. Sometimes we use the language of positional uh, relationship with God. Um, But it goes far beyond uh, justification. Um, It's too bad, well, I say this, put an asterisk, too bad that Luther said that justification was the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls because that suggests that once we understand justification, we've got it all set. But Murray says that adoption is the apex of covenant blessing. It's better than justification. Think of it this way. When the, when the prodigal son went away from home, And having filled his belly with uh, what the pigs were eating, he comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to go back to my father's house. And what did he expect? His highest expectation was justification. Maybe my father will forgive me and accept me and I can have a place at the with his hired servants again. And as far as he was concerned, that was good enough. But what did he receive? The father not only forgave him and brought him back into a servant status, but he said, I will restore you as a son. And he threw us a party, a celebration. And I think because of our emphasis on justification and the legal categories, and those are all important in their place, but I wonder how many of us as believers are predominantly conscious that our relationship to God through Christ is that of children who are loved by the infinite love of this Heavenly Father and who are invited to respond to Him in love. You know, we try and figure out what role does obedience have in the Christian life, and we're very careful to say it doesn't warrant justification, it isn't meritorious, Well, once we've said what it isn't, what is it? Well, of course, it's a child who so loves his father 
that he likes nothing better than to obey the Father, to do the Father's will. Calvin talks about adoption as being kind of the, the, the ethos of our whole experience of being believers, reconciled to God, pardoned, accepted, but now as those children who are part of his own family. So on this Father's Day Sunday, or every other day of our life, we need to look to God as the one who is the father of all fathers, and to rejoice that we have that privilege through Christ of coming to him in that way. The fatherhood of God, then, is a divine call to us, and Jesus models for us what this relationship ought to look like. You know, it's often been said that it's kind of hard to sell God to non-believers as a father because so many people's experience of life with their father is so miserable. Uh, people who have had negligent fathers, abusive fathers, fathers who have deserted them. And so we think, well, to think of God as my father makes me rather shrink back than to come forward and embrace but that's been true forever. And God gives us not only a model, calling it fatherhood, but he explains in what sense he is a father to his children and how we can participate in that and rejoice in it. Our generation is not unique in its uh, lack of appreciation for fatherhood, even in the ancient world. Fatherhood was not all that appealing. And so we come and we learn from the Bible what this fatherhood looks like. And to do that, we look at the son of all sons. Jesus' relationship to his Father in heaven is especially developed in the Gospel of John, though it's there in the synoptic, synoptics as well. And I guess the thing that's most striking as you read through John and you listen to Jesus speak about God is the intimacy of his communion with him. Some of you might have had distant fathers. If you're my generation and then you think about your fathers who were raised in the first 25 years of the last century, um, getting close to a father was not all that easy. They weren't eager about opening themselves up to conversations with their children. Thankfully, my dad led, lived to 93, and so I had a lot of time to practice. But even at the end of his life, I thought, I love him, I respect him, but I'm still not sure that I understand him. And I was pretty sure he still didn't understand me. So there's an impossibility often there for human fathers and sons, but not so the Lord Jesus. You get a glimpse when Jesus is outside the tomb of Lazarus. He's about to raise him from the dead, but he prays. You remember what he says? Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. That idea of open access and intimate conversation 
You know, I was thinking about every once in a while you read about a president's children in the White House. You know, if you wanted to go see the president, you'd have to go through channels. You'd make an appointment online, and they'd tell you, and you'd stand in line, so forth. But if you're a child of the president, you get to play on the floor in the Oval Office. You have that access because of that relationship. We have that access to the God of the universe because the God of the universe is not only our creator, but our redeemer. And through the Son has drawn us into that kind of relationship. Does your prayer sound like that? Father, I thank you that you hear me now because you always hear me. Again, we have throne room imagery. We have servants coming trembling into the presence of God. But doesn't sonship, doesn't this grace of adoption suggest that the arms of the Father are wide open to receive us? Someone has said God is far more eager to hear our prayers than we are to offer them up. Jesus shows us this relationship of intimate communion between himself and the Father in heaven. And that stems in part from the fact that the Son is the eternal Son. And so before creation, in eternity past, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had perfect union and communion with one another, self-understanding one another, having a common purpose, sharing in an infinite love that was completely satisfied within itself. And so Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, he prays to the Father in light of that pre-existence, that pre-incarnation existence of the Son. And now he's interceding for his people that we might be brought into that Fellowship. We're not absorbed into deity. It's nothing like that, no mystical absorption, but something like, on a creaturely level, the perfect union and communion that the Father, Son, and Spirit have with one another. What great privilege. No wonder Murray highlighted it as better than anything else that we can experience in the Christian life. Jesus said if we keep his commandments... We would abide in his love just as he ab- uh, abide, uh, excuse me, just as he kept his father's commandments and abides in his love. Typically, we shrink back from the idea of obedience and obligation. And if it's the obedience and the obligation of a prisoner or a slave, Uh, That's not very appealing. But what is the obligation of love of a child for a respected parent, a beloved parent? My dad, again, was not a believer. He was a good non-believer. He provided for our family. He was faithful and loyal. He made sure I had everything that I needed growing up. Sadly, he could not bring to me what I needed most, and that was faith in Christ. But I so respected him and so loved him that after early years where I really did need a spanking now and again to get me in line, but after that it was I didn't want to displease him. Not because I was afraid he would become angry, but I knew he would be disappointed. 
And so I was motivated in many of my choices out of love for my father, not out of fear of my father. And when we come to think of obedience in that way, again, Jesus is the, is the chief example. There's a wonderful passage. Uh, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, a sense of common purpose that the father had a plan that the son was identifying with and the son's obedience was for the sake of the glory of the father as the father's purposes were uh, realized through the work of the son. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. I wonder, don't hold me to this, but when I read that passage, I wonder whether Jesus is thinking of his time in the carpenter shop with Joseph and interpreting his relationship to the father in the same way. My dad was a carpenter for a good part of his career, and I I still remember rainy Saturdays in the garage working on wood projects with him, learning about tools and finding out how to join pieces of wood together. And I can imagine Jesus with Joseph. He sees what his earthly father was doing. He learns by imitation. But even more than that, the son, the eternal son, now incarnate, is is watching what the father is doing. This grand program for the uh, the, uh, redemption and the renewal of the whole creation and human beings within it. And he lines himself up with that purpose. So his obedience is not one of, a, of someone trying to earn something or someone trying to avoid being punished for failure, but it's the willing, eager heart of a son who loves the Father and who is so identified with the Father's purpose. And that culminates, of course, in the cross. In John 10, Jesus says, The Father loves me, Because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This is the charge, the the commission that I have received from my Father who sent me that I should lose nothing of all he has given me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This Son of God has gathered us into God's family and created for us, through His Spirit, a relationship through his incarnation and atonement. And so he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters because he became like us that he might draw us into that relationship. So what does God's fatherhood entail for us, particularly as fathers, but to a certain degree, all of us as believers? 
both as our creator, but then also as our redeemer. What does it mean for us as earthly fathers? Well, it certainly involves origination and provision, um, at least for our biological children. It is our union with our wife that gives birth to this new human life, and so we become fathers. Uh, Most of us with no idea whatsoever what we're getting into. Uh, You talk about a job that's almost exclusively on-the-job training. Fatherhood is certainly that way. Um, But there you are, presented with a child. Maybe you want children, uh, but we have to learn what to do with them. And so we provide for them. We care for them. We direct them as best we can, falteringly, failingly sometimes, but we want them to be physically uh, taken care of and even more so spiritually guided and directed. Paul tells us as fathers to bring our children up in the nurture and the admonition of God. And so we see to the education, and that's not just academic work, that's life education, where we help our children grow in the understanding of God's truth and its implication for their lives. It's interesting that God said of Abraham, I have called him, chosen him, so that he might teach and instruct his children after him to walk in faithfulness to God and to his covenant. And so the the greatest job that we have as fathers is not simply providing materially for our children. That's very important. But for many men, that's what providing for my family means. I remember one of of the men in my first church years ago, um, he was just working himself into the ground. He was hardly at home because he had more and more and more work. And when I talked to him about it, he says, I have to provide for my family. And that was an admirable desire. But I said, your family needs you more than it needs the paycheck that you bring home to provide for their material needs. And and he made an adjustment in his work schedule so that he might be there with his family, uh, spending time with them, instructing them, encouraging them, correcting them when necessary, but more than anything else, building a relationship with them as a father to his children. That, I guess, is the, uh, the, uh, the heart of the matter for a father, to give yourself to your children. I am so thankful that by God's grace, my kids are walking with the Lord. That's huge. Not all of you have that benefit. But to relate to them as adults and now to fathers themselves is one of my greatest joys. And to see the fruit of their upbringing now bear fruit in their families. Uh, You know, our kids can achieve Academically, they can achieve in terms of sports or, or musical gifts and skills. But if they grow up to be men, we're talking about men, who will in turn be husbands and fathers who will faithfully nurture the next generation. I read this morning again a letter that Jay Gresson Machen's father wrote to him as Machen was off to Europe in 1906. And his father was saying he felt like he was 
He was disappointed that he hadn't done more for the Christ who loved him and gave himself for him. But then he consoled himself that his son would do great things for the Lord and for his kingdom, that his son would be a better man than the father was. That resonates with your hearts, doesn't it, men? That you might see your children walking in the truth as the greatest joy, the greatest crown that you could have. All of that comes out of imitation of Christ in his relationship to his Father in heaven. The family in America today, really in all of the industrialized Western world, a lot of parts of the world, is a mess, and it's getting worse. And many think, well, if we just had a different law or different people in the White House or on the Supreme Court, we could reverse this trend. Uh, I personally think we're past the place of no return. We won't learn until we can't learn in any other way. If you don't read the sign, the bridge is out, you don't learn the bridge is out until you go over the bridge. But I don't despair because we, as the family of God, know how to build families. If we'll put the energy in it, if we'll trust in the spirit of adoption, if we will give ourselves to our children, then we can restore the family even if Washington, or the world for that matter, continues on its self-destructive path. So I encourage you, brothers, as fathers, if you're grandfathers and you don't get to see your grandchildren very often and your own children are away from you, then it's time for you to, to adopt some children in the family of God and pour yourself into their lives as well. You know, as I look back over now almost 50 years in the ministry, I had two sons and then a son-in-law, so three sons. But then I've got dozens of young men that I had the opportunity to shepherd and father along the way. Um, They're not mine by birth, but that's a great ministry. And, And too many men, you know, they... They've done their job of raising children. Get involved. You know, it would shock the daylights out of the church if a 70-year-old grandpa volunteered to teach Sunday school to elementary kids. But what a great combination, the seasoned wisdom of years with children in those formative developing times. We have a great Heavenly Father. We've been introduced to a wonderful and rich relationship with Him as sons of God. And that's not only privilege, it's obligation, it's responsibility to live out of that sonship in our relationship to our wives, certainly to our own children and to the children of the family of God as God gives us opportunity. May He give us grace to do that. Lord, we thank you that you are our Father in heaven, that you sent your own beloved Son, the apple of your eye, into the world to accomplish your purposes, culminating in his death and then vindicated by his resurrection. And we thank you that as we read the Gospels, 
and hear how the Son spoke of the Father, we can read ourselves right into that story in terms of an intimacy of fellowship with you, communion in prayer, and in the study and reflection on your word. We can obey you, not out of slavish fear or the hope of some arbitrary reward, but the reward of seeing, as it were, the smile upon your face. For you to say of us, as you said of Jesus, these are my sons in whom I am well pleased. O Lord God, we pray that you would strengthen the fathers of the church in our own day, that we wouldn't look to somebody else to solve the problems with the family, but that we would take up our own responsibilities and discharge them faithfully and joyfully that others, boys and girls, might come into that wonderful relationship to the Father in heaven that you have opened up for us through your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.